Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, sponsored by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer. And I'm Katie Hopkins, and we will be your hosts. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Vanita Fordham. As a technology leader in artificial intelligence and other cutting-edge technologies, Vanita has spent almost 20 years working with mission partners, end-to-end users, and clients alike to realize the art of the possible by planning for and delivering mission-ready capabilities, impacting national security and other public sector priorities. She currently serves as the Chief Innovation Officer for BCOR, a full-spectrum intelligence solutions company based in McLean, Virginia. Prior to that, she served as an AI specialist leader at Deloitte, focused on delivering and advocating for mission-ready AI strategies and solutions. She also served as a senior executive in the United States government, specializing in emerging and disruptive technologies and leading digital transformation efforts. She attributes one of the major factors of that success to building strategic partnerships with other government executives and C-suite leaders in the Fortune 500 landscape and startup community. Benita is a native of Louisiana and received her bachelor's degree in computer and electrical engineering from Louisiana State University. She also has a master's degree in program management from George Washington University. Hi, Vanita. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you guys? We're we're great. We're excited that you're here. Well, I, I'm very excited. And um, as I said prior, this is this is really great what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. Thank you for trusting us because some people know us before they join us and you didn't. Um, and so we appreciate you even more because you're kind of coming in here cold. Well, I, I think you guys are a bit of a known quantity in the sense of a lot of the, the work and the podcasts that you guys have done have been pretty, pretty exceptional. Well, thank you. That means a lot. So um, we often joke that, uh, you know, I think in life when people say, tell me about yourself, um, you know, people don't usually mean tell me about yourself from the beginning. Um, but we actually mean that. And so we were wondering if you could start by telling us just who you are, where you grew up, you know, how you came here if you moved here to DC, what got you into national security? Yeah, so I actually grew up in Louisiana. Um, and I think I had a pretty amazing childhood and the pretty carefree in that regard. And I, I ended up going to LSU, hardcore LSU. Fan. Oh my gosh, go Tigers. And, my dad went to LSU. He's yeah. going to love this. Yeah. So I, this is, you know, our whole life revolves around LSU and the Saints. Like when it came to schedules to the point where like my family lived a mile from the gates. So we not only had, you know, we're in the tailgates, but we were dealing with the traffic associated with everybody coming and going from the games. And although my kids and my oldest didn't end up going to LSU, 
I still, you know, everybody wears LSU <laughs> swag all the time. Um, but yeah, so um, grew up in Louisiana, a lot of family in and around Louisiana and Texas and Mississippi. So kind of stayed in that space. Um, and then I I actually, I got my degree in engineering. So computer and electrical engineering from LSU and then ended up moving here um, to Virginia side Um my husband had gotten a job up here, but I also wanted to pursue a degree in, in project management over at GW. So ended up getting a job here and going to school um, and got my master's here. I mean, that's kind of how I ended up in the, the area. And, and it was actually in 2000. It was easy enough to remember. But how I joined the CIA, I, I actually um, was a brand new mom and was working in Bethesda. So it was a very long commute. I was trying to figure out like this area, where should I work? What? Or how can I like be a little bit closer, be more for my my son. And one of my friends actually worked at the agency. And so she said, you should really consider this. You know, we need more technologists and more engineers as we're building out some of these. So you should consider applying. I applied. I didn't think I was going to hear back. And I got an uh, interview in like a month and then an offer letter like two months later. So it was pretty, pretty like quick. I didn't expect that at all. Um, I was going to say most people, I said, I I want our listeners to know that it usually doesn't go that quickly. (laughs) That made it up because other people were like, oh, 12. Mine was like around 18 months, but, but that's essentially, and I ended up starting at the NRO and that was an interesting, um, you know, coming in as I was essentially a mid-career hire. So I, before that, I had been in tech companies doing a lot of um, uh, network engineering and server engineering, architecture, that sort of thing. Um, so I came in, it was very different coming from the tech world. And then an NRO is National Reconnaissance Office, is civilian as well as military, right? So I was getting acclimated to that. And so that that's kind of how I got started into the intelligence community and um, ended up, that was a Eventually, ended up at CIA headquarters and, and focusing on technology solutions there. But I will say, while it started off of how do I like get close enough so that I can manage being a mom and, and a professional, um, as time has gone by, it's very much about the mission itself. It's it's truly in my blood at this point. Um, you know, it's it's almost twenty years in, um, both as a staffer and a contractor, and. I just can't imagine being part of any other mission at this point. Going in, you basically made the decision to switch from industry to government. It was a family decision yeah. because you just wanted to be able to be there yeah. for your uh, for your child. Yeah. Um, That's such an interesting reason. Also, I don't think we've had anybody say that. But the mission came later because so, so, some people, ha- you know, they come on and they say, yeah. They say, well, you know, I went in because of 9-11, right? And I had this mission, I had this, you know, want for mission because I saw what happened at 9-11. And so I wonder, I don't even know how to ask this question, but, you know, how did that develop that sense of mission once you were in? It was the impact. So um, a big part of that, I was starting to understand, right, that the work that I was doing, whether it was you know, developing the systems, monitoring it, whatever was going on, it was what was it impacting? And I was also starting to understand events that were going on, whether they were at home or globally, you know, how what we were doing was impacting it. And thinking about it from, I mean, there were many times where I'd see world events, and I would immediately start to understand and connect the dots about what it is that we're doing and how we're protecting 
And coming from a family, you know, immigrant family, so second generation, my dad came here, brought his family here thinking about, you know, having all of these opportunities that he always wanted. And it really turned into, I'm helping protect that. And, and that is something that till this day is pretty dear to me. And so when I thought about these missions and I thought about like who we were impacting, it's always about that. And every day it's been more and more like these things. When I hear about these events, when I think about the news and things that are going on, it's like, well, how are, are our folks within the IC affected? How can we help them? What are things that we can do? Did we think about this? Did we think about that? It's just like, these are the things that go on in my head, even when I'm just like outside. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. But it's grown over time. Uh, in that regard. Where were your parents from? Um, so my parents from India, uh, Northeast India. It's a state called Bihar. And um, came here. my parents came here in their late 20s. Um, my dad actually got a scholarship to LSU. Oh, so he did his PhD at LSU. Um, and that's how they came into the States and, and loved it here. My dad loved it here. And so they stayed. That's really amazing. What is maybe one piece of Indian culture that you felt like you really had growing up that you would want our listeners to know about? So, you know, a lot of people, when they hear I'm from Louisiana, they're like, wait, what? They're Indians in Louisiana. (laughs) So I get a lot of that. Um, LSU, what? Um, It's actually, so growing up, it was a small Indian community. So we were all like family. We'd see each other every weekend. Every holiday was together. So we were very much probably even more Indian than I think some of my cousins in India because my parents (laughs) remembered India in a certain way. Um, as a result. And so I think with that regard, I'm not sure people necessarily realize that. I didn't realize that, you know, there were such larger Indian communities that I came to Virginia and it was like, there's just so many Indians here and there. We were just used to seeing each other in this small community. So I think in that, in that way, we were very close minute, which made me understand my culture um, a lot more. Like, so I was definitely Southern Louisiana and Cajun, and then there's this Indian part of me, which confuses, you know, my own family sometimes when I do stuff. But that's kind of how I see myself. That's amazing. I'm also curious. So it sounds like you went to LSU, you majored in engineering. Why engineering? Like why technology? Was there was there something? What about that drew you? Yeah. So I think um, this is actually when I was younger, um, my my brother was really into engineering and building gadgets and things like that. And so whenever I was like upset or crying or something, because we already have a 10 year difference. So it's like his baby, baby sister. He would like show me the gadget that he built, whether it was the radio or the signal detector or whatever it was. And I just was so fascinated by chips, by how it all worked. And it just ended up becoming something like when it came time to pick, I was like, I'm going to do this. And then um, I minored in computer science. So then it was building out all of these you know, coding, these programs and these functions and products. That I just thought was fascinating. So that's kind of my brother ended up being a doctor. I'm the one ended up being the engineer. But, <laughs> but that's, that's what started, I think, for me. So tell us a little bit about your career path and how it progressed and some of your favorite jobs that you've had. Yeah. So um, I think from the very outset, I was always fascinated with the aspect of how do you apply new technologies. So um, when I started with 
CIA, even from the very beginning when we had like our orientation, you know, and you have this long uh, orientation where they introduce you to all these different offices and then they want you to kind of talk about how you would use them. I immediately gravitated towards InQtel. Um, I don't know if folks know what InQtel is, but, you know, startup companies, they go out and they, you know, scout startup companies and new technologies. Uh, and I was determined that I was going to work somewhere in and around that. And so I, I, I don't even think I was a month in to NRO and I was like, okay, who is, who's in charge of it? What do they do? How do I apply? And they were like, well, you know, the people who work there, they're like careerists. So you're not going to really like probably get an opportunity until somebody retires. And I'm like, fine. (laughs) And, um, but then they changed their, I think, regulation around that where they just changed their career model where they were rotating like everybody else. The minute I saw that email, I was calling the head of our career service. I was like, I will take it. I will take it. Um, and they're like, no, you have to interview. You have to go through a panel. <laughs> like, okay, that's fine. But I will take it just so you know. And I was very, but that's just from the very outset. And every um, assignment that I took, every project that I took was really about like, how do we take these new things, whether it was best practices, whether it was the technologies to bring them in to make things better? How do we like move out some of the legacy stuff that was causing angst and pain um, and bringing that in? So I think that we should pull on that string a little bit because I think that a lot of people might understand the government not to be forward um, thinking in that regard that there's not they're not bringing in the the new technologies or they're slow to the uptake and um so how could you ex- or combat that narrative or explain that in a way that you can yeah i mean i think that you know there definitely is a balance right of camps that are like look certain things are very specific and we don't need to change it we can't change it because of a risk so there's that piece of it. And you always have to be sensitive because at the end of the day, we're all here to, from a national security perspective and, and that mission. The flip side of that balance is, is how do we start to expose folks to the art of the possible around what if you looked at the problem differently? And I, I think that there are a lot more of that than people may realize. To your point about government and bureaucracy and, and behemoth and machine and all of that, there are a lot more people who want to see things get better. And if they're able to be convinced that technology can help them do that and buy down that risk, then they're open to it. The question is more about how do you make it accessible at least in my experience, how do you make it accessible to them that when you're telling them this is going to cause a change, it's culturally going to allow them to ease into it. And I think that's, that's something that people don't necessarily like, I think in the commercial world has their own cultural change sort of issues going on. It's the same balance, right? When you have large organizations have standing culture, have been doing things a certain way, you've got to ease people in. So for people who might not know about InQtel or the types of commercial technologies that the government works with, like maybe what were some of the coolest 
technologies that you got to work with that you can talk about for NRO, for CIA? Like, what did that look like? I am a massive fan of augmented reality and virtual reality. The applications are just boundless there. I, you know, we had a couple of just like maker lab sort of things. And there was like, well, if you can't find Vanita, go look over there. She's probably there (laughs) around. And I would just like play with some of that stuff. I just thought it was just the most fascinating thing. Um, I was going to say the other things that were, I started to learn, learn more about like just the, the idea of prototyping and piloting is um, we were trying to, there was one company and, and we ultimately did not use that company, but the company was trying to figure out how to like, if you're sitting and you're looking at your screen and somebody's behind you, they can't see the screen you can still see it and it had to do with your eyes, um, you know, and, and that was your biometric sign, right? They couldn't get me because my eyes were too dark and it wouldn't work. And I just was fascinated on like, how does that play out? What would your testing look like? And I'm sure that person was not happy with me with asking all the questions. <laughs> but, but those are the things I thought was, those were really fascinating to me. That's really cool. How would you apply augmented reality, virtual reality for national security. So a lot of that is around like simulation of scenarios, right? And being able to like, if you're going in spaces, you can kind of understand. And even things like basic, like even just from a corporate standpoint, if you're building out an office or you're building out something, you're able to simulate and see where things could be, how they should be. So that when you're planning things out, then you're able to do it that way. So that's probably um, the the easiest scenario. I mean, there's a couple of other really interesting ones. I've, aside from the, I, the other thing I have to say this is that aside from the virtual reality one, uh, 3D printers, I just like, when I first like went to some convention and 3D printers came up and there was like the guy who makes the maker bot was there to like speak. And I just, I bought three 3D printers no like as a course of like six months. My family's like, please stop. <laughs> You would be welcomed in my family. My husband and son would love you. Like we had like for the CIO conference one year, I had to speak and we were doing like TED Talk things. I brought in my 3D printer, like little things that I printed. Like I didn't, I'm sure, you know, they were just like, Benita, please. That's so funny. You know, I, when I was consulting, I had, I was working with this one company that did the the VR and he was using it. He was targeting uh, the military specifically and the way he was, you know, pitching it and selling it was for training so that they could, you know, you know, the guys could put it on and simulate where they were going and what they were going to do, which I thought was, I mean, when it is kind of crazy, you put it on and you're like, holy crap, I'm there. (laughs) It is. And you're just like, yeah, I, and that's the thing that was amazing to me is all of the applicability and, and, you know, the thing that's also, and, and this goes back to your earlier question about people not necessarily equating government folks with new technology in novel ways is there's so many interesting ideas that have come out of just the VR and AR space that people have thought of, like even from a wellness perspective, right? So we're not able to move in and out. We can't we can't have certain things like track uh, Fitbits and that sort of thing, right? Well how about creating a space virtually for yoga and for meditation and you know things like that. Like I think those and that all comes from novel and unique ways that folks within the agency are thinking. 
So to all the gamers out there, yeah. the IC has a place for you. Absolutely. IC has a place for everyone. Yeah, I think people need to realize that if they have not already listening to this. Podcast. Yeah, no, that is absolutely true. And that's what made me think is 3D printers. I think that's another one that does like a simulation of your space too. Yeah. So those kind of use cases. So I'm curious, you've talked about this a couple times. When it comes to taking risk, like what is the government's, like these large organizations, like what is their appetite for risk? Like in certain ways, when you think about how the intelligence community is portrayed, you see like James Bond running around, like taking all kinds of risks, like doing lawless things, right? Then at the same time, like you can also see how the government might be very risk averse because like the stakes are just so high. Like what was your experience in some of those organizations and their risk tolerance? So I think it's definitely calculated risk, but I do think that depending on the impact, like if you're talking about from a technology standpoint, depending on the impact, if the impact was high, even if the risk may have been high, there really was an appetite to try. So, and, and when you're talking about the larger, whether it's from a financial standpoint of the cost was larger, the impact may have been high, but it, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more effort in putting some of these things in. The tolerance was probably a little bit less only because of what, how hard was it going to be to put it in? I don't know if that makes sense, but like some of the mission ones that are more tactical in nature, they were a lot easier to like pilot it, try it, and then let's go. So if I need to take the risk, let's go ahead and take that risk because I'm good with this and I'm going to know the answer. Whereas the larger enterprise type of technology bills, there's a lot more work and they want to make sure that they were buying down that risk Mm -hmm. from a people and cost perspective. Is it because the decision makers are different? Like the personas are different or is it actually like a calculation or both? I think it's both. Um, But I do think that the individuals making the decision have a really big kind of influence, right? Um, There are definitely folks that are either it's risk averse or averse to change. And so those that are averse to change are going to be the ones I think that you'll see kind of a steady state of, you know, we'll have systems in there for a very long time. Um, And then, but those that are, all right, let's try it. Um, you probably will have a balance of either some that are like, let's go, let's go now. Let's just figure out how to get through these hoops. Let's call it good. And then let's go. And some that are like, let's take this, let's call it a three-year effort as opposed to five-month effort, like that sort of thing. So it's a balance and it depends on the personality. I was probably somewhere closer to the five-month <laughs> So I'm wondering, I think you might have answered this, but I'm going to give you the opportunity if, if it's not what I think it is. Um, what what has been your favorite job that you've had um, throughout your career thus far? I mean, you told us how much you always wanted to work in the InQtel space. And when you had the opportunity, you went for it. But were there other positions that, you know, called to you and or that you just landed in that yeah. you loved? So I think, um, you know, working you know, in the incutal space with, so I'm an introvert by nature. And so one of the things, another reason why I wanted to do that is because it was going to force me to talk to random people that I hadn't known, had no idea, or I was going to get thrust in front of seven floor leaders immediately and then have to figure out how I was going to speak. And this was going to force me to learn those skills. And so that was a big part of it, including understanding like just new tech generally. Um, 
But what that did also is give me a lot of understanding of not just, hey, what should we bring in, but really take stances on, I really believe in this technology. Let me help us make it real. So to that end, the reason why I bring it up that way is I ended up standing up the enterprise mobile apps team uh, from an enterprise perspective, a corporate perspective. And that to me was a really great experience. Um, one, it was, you know, you've got, you know, five positions that you got to fill and here's the tech lead and figure it out. So it was very startup type of mentality. And they were like, you've got a startup sort of vibe going on. You can, you know, just let us know how it's going. And I actually, I brought in college graduates um, to, to be the developers. So they had no clue about the culture aspects, the bureaucracy aspects. They just knew they wanted to go. Yeah. And, you know, I had a lot of support from leadership, but I mean, in that one year, like we developed eight apps to go and that's unheard of. And they went into production. Um, and in that process, we interface with industry. We learned not, not just interfacing. We were working hand in hand doing pair programming on, on the, uh, the company site to build out some of this stuff. Like it was something that I, I was like, wait, we can start to do these things. And that was probably part of like, when you talk about risk and all of that and, you know, having the faith to like, let's just push, like that gave me a lot of that confidence to push that stuff through. Um, and then I would say the, the other one was um, being the CTO and then later the deputy director of digital futures. And, and that kind of the imperative there is that's where I really started to get into the AIML kind of capabilities, how we were going to make this work. What is it that we're going to do corporately? Um, but then also I wanted us to really be accessible to industry. I didn't want industry to be scared because we were CIA, yeah. black suits and glasses. And, and we started to really seek not just the folks that traditionally worked with us, but people who were just like, I, what? CIA wants to talk to me. What happened? What, 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 what did, did I, I do? do? <laughs> right. And we're like, no, no, no. Um, and, and so that, those are the avenues that, you know, I really got to, to work so closely. That is really awesome. Also for those who can't see Vanita, she is not wearing a black suit. No. <laughs> Just to be super clear. So Vanita, tell us what you're doing right now. Yeah. So I, um, am the chief innovation officer of a company called B Core. Um, so B Core is actually, I think we are a little past 70 days, 75 days in existence. So um, it is um, a company that's focused on what we call full spectrum intelligence um, and technical solutions to support that. So the idea with that being is as we started thinking about like what what do we want this company to be? And it's so I would like to premise it with preface it with it's an amalgamation of multiple companies that have come together to become one um and it's a bridge core which was the original platform company geo yeti which is a data analytics company and technolution which is an it services based company along with bridge core um and so by full spectrum intelligence really looking at the intelligence life cycle to say hey what are all the pieces from a technology solutions that we should be looking at to provide those novel solutions to support and make that intelligence life cycle um, easier for mission to execute? So I'm going to give a shout out to two of our friends at B Corps, um, Joe Gavernsky and Chad Kim, because 
I think they'll love it. So <laughs> you're working with some some good dudes. Yeah, and that and they are a big part of the reason why I said yes. I so I knew the Bridgecore CEO for a very long time. Worked with him when I was um, a staff officer, um, and he introduced me to Chad. And Chad and I sat down a couple times um, prior to me saying yes, and we just. I think it was like maybe one day we spent like maybe one and a half hours or so just thinking about like, how can we impact mission and what are ways, what's the future of trade craft, you know, obviously in, in unclassified settings, but, right, it, right. but, but thinking about it from the intelligence, what's that mission that we're all trying to solve and how can we help and what's the way that we can impact the most. So, and it was really hard for me to kind of say no with that and, and Sue Gordon and Bob Sharp are on the board. The board. Um, and Sue Gordon for me is just a legend in and of herself. Yeah, she's, um, she's a legend and I don't know if we would, she's going to hate that I say this, but I don't know if we'd be where we are without, without her. She has been one of the biggest supporters of Iron Butterfly. If I talk too much about her, I'll cry, but she's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was an hour and a half with Sue and I was like, all right, Chad. (laughs) (laughs) That's really amazing. I also, for those who don't have context, like it's pretty rare for small companies to like come together, yeah. like in a structure like this, right? Yeah. I've not seen too many and it, it's, it seems very thoughtful to me about like how we're thinking it through and, and Chad's vision of kind of working through all of these pieces. It's, it's pretty great because even I've been part of a company for eight weeks now, I think. Um, and I feel like I've learned so much with regards to how he's been thinking that through. So it is really great. Yeah. That's amazing. And I guess, you know, we were talking about risk earlier, like this must've been a huge personal risk for you, like taking the leap from this probably pretty stable government career to a company that's brand new with a structure that's totally novel like how how did you make that leap? So before I um, so when I left, I actually I left during the pandemic, and a big part of that had to do with um, so I've got three kids, and these kids are at home, and my husband works in the intelligence community as well, and so we're trying to figure out how to manage three children aged at that time I think it was fourteen to one. Um, across the board. And so they're at home. Who's watching them? How do we do that? So there was a big part of me. The other side of it was I had always thought about um, how can I be part of some of the solutions that I've been seeing so that I can start to inform more to develop some of these solutions as they're coming in. So it was a balance of those things to say it was time for me to, to maybe look at other ways to impact. So I actually ended up joining Deloitte. So I was at Deloitte first, um, and that was a really great experience to really understand the industry, to understand being on the other side of this coin um, and the diversity and the people that I worked with were pretty amazing. Um, And, you know, from the intelligence community account, as well as like the government practice generally, as I started, but the, the switch from all of those is as I was learning more and more, I felt like. I love Deloitte and that could be very much uh, a company that I could continue to work with um, and have an amazing career. But at the end of the day, this opportunity was so unique to your point and rare to make that type of impact and learn 
the development of, you know, this type of company, I really wanted to see that through. Um, and, and I had a lot of discussions with my husband on like, to your point, the risk aspect, I was like, are you ready for this? Cause you know, and so one of the things for me, um, I, I guess I was pretty ambitious from the outset. So I used to, when I was a teenager, I used to have like a list of these are all the things I want to do when I'm older. And one of them was C-suite of a company. He was like, you got to like check that box off for the 16 year old. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, let's go. Let's, we're going to do this. So it was, it was very much, I think with his help. And I think it's been a great decision. That's awesome. So this season's theme is the butterfly effect. And so we're wondering if you could tell us how you believe you've affect, you have affected change either on an individual level or an organization level, or even on a global level. So I think um, it's an interesting question. I, I think when it comes to innovation and technology and really being at the, the cutting edge and managing in a culture that isn't necessarily used to such stark change, um, what I would say is, is that my impact to that is through the course of my career, I have spent my time putting in these new solutions and new ways of doing things that have added up to an impact that now that we're seeing a lot more today. And so when we talk about like our enterprise infrastructure or the way that we do business, um, I can say I had my hand in that because of the six things that led up to that. And I, to me, that's pretty cool because during the, during while we were doing it, I didn't think about it. It was like, that's really cool. I just want to do that. Can I please do that? I think I'll stand that up. Like that's kind of how those decisions were made. Yeah. But then to see the end result 15 years later, 16 years later to say, oh, I did that. I remember when we were doing this and now seeing how folks have built on top of it and doing pretty amazing things and turned it into stuff I never thought we would even do. Like to me, that's a really great thing to be a part of. I love the way you talk about impact because you're not measuring your actions on their own face, right? You're measuring like you, the way you talk about impact is that it compounds over time in a way that like is totally out of any single individual's control, but you started that chain reaction. I think, and I think it's fun, right? Like it's, you're mixing your passion with, with fun. Um, and you're only going to do great things with those things put mixing these things together. Right. And the other piece is I, I think just generally in our space, and I think people who have passion around the same industries, whatever those industries are, is that your intent is very much along the same line. You're trying to do good. You're trying to make an impact. And so at the end of the day, you may agree or disagree, but you're always trying to make an impact and, and make the world better. And that's what I think this has done. Hopefully. That's amazing. So we've come to the end we end each episode with the same question, which is in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So I don't know if it's just like this running joke or I, I'm, I'm a big sci-fi geek and I love the Avengers and, um, and DC Comics as well. So even like my first assignment, you know, at the NRO, they had, when I left, they had like a picture of me as Wonder Woman. Oh, I love it. And then, and then when I left and my last assignment at Digital Futures, they had uh, Miss Marvel. Um, and then I got like a whole bunch of little figurines, Avengers figurines as a result. I think the whole theme, the cake even had like Avengers on it. So I would say Miss Marvel. That's awesome. I love it so much. So tell people who don't know who Miss Marvel is, tell the characteristics of her. 
Yeah. So she is basically somebody that can, she's got these superpowers that basically turns light into physical, a physical state in order to do something, whether it's to get larger, smaller, protect someone, keep somebody sheltered, et cetera. Man, that is so, totally. That's amazing. Yeah. How do you feel like that encapsulates you? Um, I would say that, you know, when we're talking about my job, I believe that my mission for, you know, my career is based on bending these technologies and figuring out how we're going to apply them to do my part in protecting. That's what I would say. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Anita, for agreeing to do this. And thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful. It's been great. And I hope we weren't, I hope we were hospitable. <laughs> she didn't know us before she came in today, so I hope she was the best editing of all time. <laughs> this has been an episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast. We want to thank the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School for their technical sponsorship and Amazing Women of the IC for their promotion. To learn more about Iron Butterfly Media, visit our website at www.ironbutterflymedia.com. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. To find out more about AWIC, email amazingwomen.ic at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we want to thank our producer, Amanda Young, and Gracie Richberg for marketing assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.